0: everyone and welcome back to China in the Americas podcast. Today we're going to do a special episode, the first of many I think, with Ethan. who first episode could be my co-host and we're going to have a, you know, a nice back and forth conversation about some interesting news topics that we both have been thinking about for the last few days or last few weeks or even last few months in some cases. So hi Ethan and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey Rashid, great to be here. Awesome. So, the
0: first thing I want to get to, which I think is probably the most fun to discuss in this instance, is going to be the recent conversation or seminar discussion between the Southcom commander, Laura Richardson, about Latin America, the US foreign policy, primarily defense as and security cooperation. But she had some very interesting comments, I'd say, on Panama, the Panama Canal, and Chinese investment so right now i am here in panama that's where i live now so when i see these comments to me it's also a bit more uh, intriguing so i'm going to play a clip a very short clip from um, the southcom commander and then we can get into the conversation
1: i'd be interested in your uh, assessment of what you see china's long-term military ambitions uh in latin america for example should the United States be worried about the security of the Panama Canal uh, in, in, in immediate, we've got to get ready for a challenge terms? Well,
2: I think so. I think that uh, I was just in Panama about a month ago, uh, and the uh, flying along the Panama Canal and looking at all the state-owned enterprises from the PRC on each side of the uh, Panama Canal I worry about the, uh, you know, they look like civilian companies or state-owned enterprises that could be used for dual use and could be quickly changed over to a military capability if they needed that, too. And so as I look at this, uh, the investment that they make, it looks like, again, they're investing. I look at it as extracting. And so uh, I think we should be concerned. But this is a global problem. It's not just in my region. It's not just in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, this is a global uh, issue. This is the same playbook that they've used in Africa, Asia, Europe. It's not new. We're about five to ten years in this region behind Africa. But I think that, uh, again, I, I talk about we know what's going on east-west a lot, uh, but not right in our own neighborhood.
0: So, yes essentially there's this potential threat of chinese investments turning into military operations and you know we've been hearing this for a while she did mention africa and we could be hearing that in africa for a longer time which is true but nothing there has actually materialized into this dual use material uh, military operation gambit from investment uh, so yeah what do you think of these comics and why at this juncture is she making these, what I would consider to be kind of absurd comments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I agree with you, Rashid, that these aren't necessarily serious arguments, right? That, you know, suddenly a bunch of Chinese boogeymen are going to jump out of their state-owned enterprises. You know, they might be running a engineering firm, but secretly they're carrying rifles. Um, I, I think it probably has more to do with the internal politics in these organizations. You know, th- this was speech was made at the Aspen Institute. Uh, yearly Security Forum in, in Colorado. And you have to remember that Southcom is a bit player um, compared to a lot of the other commands, right? They have 1,200 personnel. Indopaccom has almost 400,000 personnel. And so when Washington at the moment is really concerned about Chinese influence around the world um, and what China is doing, and that's, you know, the big buzzword at the moment, uh, any way you can get in on that, I think, is seen as, as really important. And then the other half of this, too, is that, you know, she said, if she could have referenced, you know, there's a um, facility in Argentina that's supposedly for space watching. Uh, you know, there's some questions whether or not they're actually using it also for some kind of military satellite connection. It's a real possibility, it seems. But instead, she goes for the Panama Canal, which people have this really strong feeling about. You know, as uh, Americans, there's the David McCullough book, right, about the Panama Canal that right. everyone references. And it it really captures the American re- imagination. Everyone talks about how great Teddy Roosevelt is. And, like, the first thing they mention is the Panama Canal, which, like, he, he didn't build. He, like, stole the land. And great. <laughs> so um, I think it's, you know, a bid to get more resources to draw attention to their concerns. And it's a very visceral image. And it's something that people can really connect to because... They feel something towards the Panama Canal that maybe they wouldn't of you know, Patagonian, you know, flatlands that, like, who really cares about um, in the U.S. De- defense yeah. establishment?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Definitely one of the things where it's, uh, I'm, I'm talking to D.C. crowd primarily. I'm talking mm-hmm. to my other military commanders. I'm talking to, you know, State Department, you know, General D.C. And it, it, that does seem to be the case when, when I hear these comments because I can't really think they're talking to people in Latin America. I can't think they're really talking to people in, in the Caribbean. Most times I can't think they're talking to people in Africa, for example. Mm-hmm. The comments are just so untuned to the reality on the ground. And even even the Panama Canal is a, a weird pivot point also because see anyone, anyone who knows about the Panama Canal even you know, above average, or who live in Canada. There is, sorry, live in Panama. <laughs> there is no way anything, anything happens the Panama Canal and the U.S. does not know eight years ahead. Right. It's impossible. The amount of spies and operatives in Panama just to security Panama Canal is, you know, quite extensive. But that's not because of Panama, it's because of the U.S. The, the Panama Canal has had such a dramatic impact on the u.s economy and continuing to do so that it, 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 they see it as you know justifiably in so many ways a u.s in the u.s asset a u.s interest so trying to i guess that's why you're trying to stock up fears about chinese corruption of the panama canal is very provocative it's very good politics on, on her part and you know her team's part but to think that they could be surprised by any activity with China in the canal is just absurd. And the mere fact they're bringing it up here really is just, to me, politics. It cannot be any military or foreign policy or strategic agenda there. It has to be only politics. There's too much knowledge and information in the U.S. about the canal. I, I was told recently by, you know, a, a fairly high-level diplomat that, mm-hmm. you know, there's so... So many spies from the US and Panama just to protect the canal. And he was very serious. He's not being like, joking about it. He was very serious. Right. Yeah, it's just one of the things where politics have become foreign policy, I guess, because no one in the US, senior departments at least, are actually making foreign policy. You, you see these constant, constant speeches, even from her and many other people all the time, about, oh, our foreign policy has failed. The Caribbean, our foreign policy has failed Latin America, our foreign policy has failed Africa. But no one's actually changing the foreign policy. Right. They just have speeches about the failure of it, but no one seems to be in charge of changing the foreign policy. So it's interesting, it's almost like a performance art in many ways, where all you do is gesture towards change and like symbolize transition, but you don't actually do the things. It's, it's amazing how a lot of foreign policy has become this performance art. And I, I don't think people are noticing how desperate this kind of rhetoric is going to when you use this kind of rhetoric to
1: talk about uh, China. It's not good look. Well, how do you think this comes across for for, you know, an everyday Panamanian or a Panamanian maybe who pays a little bit more attention to the news? Um, you know, do they just lap this off? Do they agree? Are they afraid as well of Chinese control of the Panama Canal from secret SOE soldiers? Um, you know, how <laughs> does this come across?
0: I, I think it, it's, it's mixed. So when, this, uh, when she made this speech, there was, you know, it was clipped and it was on Fox and CNN and so on Twitter, of course, and I saw there was a, a Panamanian journalist, fairly popular one. He shared it on his Instagram, I think it was, or Twitter, maybe both. And I saw it on some of my friends' Instagram. And the comments were, they, they were they were mixed, honestly. Some were like, oh, these people don't understand the canal, of Panama. And some were like, oh, yeah, these Chinese invaders are going to come and steal our country. Right. So it very, it, very, it very much is mixed. Uh, I would say more so is about the Americans who seem to not understand Panama anymore. Uh, but they definitely were this, um, you know, anti-Chinese rhetoric. And to, to be clear also, when in Panama, it's the same because anti-Chinese is very much PRC Chinese. Mm-hmm. And they, they never really imply local Chinese because, uh, I think it's about 5% of the population here in Panama is ethnic Chinese. It's quite, quite high. And they usually, they never mean those people usually really, really mean PRC, China government, more so than people from China. But essentially, you have that kind of problem also. But yeah, I think receive-wise, it's fairly mixed. Uh, majority of people were more joking, out of joking about the US than any
1: kind of fear of a Chinese takeover. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, do you think this negatively impacts US Panamanian, you know, these kinds of fears, you know, does it make it harder for the Panamanian government to have good relations with the US? Or does it, you know, it brings up Panama status and so you think it benefits them? Or just no no effect at all, they just ignore this kind of rhetoric, they're used to it? It
0: seems to be the la- that latter point to where it is, it's just rhetoric, it just goes over, you know, just rhetoric is a very harsh statement because rhetoric has a huge impact on politics, but I don't think it's taken very seriously. You know, it should obviously mean something, of course. I right. think more so the intimate relationship between the U.S. and Panama is one of those. So you, you can't break it, really. It's not something that can, can can fissure very, very easily. No matter who the Panama takes money from or takes investment from, it's actually not even that much Chinese investment in Panama, by the way. It's, just, it's not that much. You will see some data points about how... You know, there's many, many billions of dollars from Chinese investment into Panama, but oftentimes it's just because Panama is a banking hub. You will see it come to Panama to then get reallocated to other Latin American countries. So it's not really, you know, real asset investment in that in that sense. So yeah, I I don't think it's a way re- a way to really break Panama U.S. ties, which also is kind of why to me when you when you hear this conversation about, oh, well, do use military strategic agenda from China and Panama becomes even less palatable, or say less um, realistic, because it is known, this is is very much known that the U.S. and Panama are extremely tight. It's like saying, well, there's so much, let's say there's a lot of investment from Chinese companies in Kansas. You say, oh, Kansas City is getting a bit wild, guys. You've got to watch this do. It's the same kind of thing in my sense. Right, well,
1: you know, This also wasn't anything new. I mean, I remember when I was, I must have been like 10 or 11. And so this is like mid early 2000, early aughts. uh, My dad was like, you know, we got to be like really, you know, worried because China's taking over the Panama Canal. I think there was a Hong Kong based (laughs) company that was like supplying something or providing some management service after the handover in 2000. And, you know, I I mean, like I have this memory of like walking down the street and talking to my dad and he just read something in the New York Times. So clearly this is also just not a new thing. I thought it was interesting how she's like, you know, this is a very near term. Panama Canal is about to be taken over by the Chinese. And so, you know, not only is this a, a strong feeling that I think a lot of Americans can relate to, but it's one they've had clearly for quite a while and won't be going away, I think, anytime soon. But you know, has been there for some time.
0: And it actually reminds me of this. Uh, so I've been reading a book recently. Uh, it's called Caribbean Interests of the United States by Chester Lloyd-Jones. It was written in 1903. I found like a, uh, a used copy online. Sorry, written in 1916. So Wow. Yeah. I'd hope
1: they weren't printing new editions of that. <laughs> Be surprised
0: and and i was curious what was the uh, he was a, p- a professor at the university of wisconsin he was a, a caribbean u.s scholar i didn't even okay. know that was a thing back back then but so essentially he was given a summary of the u.s.'s knowledge and ability and posture towards the caribbean region broadly construed so you know in this case be Caribbean. And interestingly, when you read some of the stuff here, nothing has changed that much, right? It hasn't changed that much. You will see um comments about, for example, under the, the comment here where they were he was saying that well, Japan was buying a port. A port off the the parts of Caribbean, Mexico, and the Congress had to act to prevent Japanese from coming so close to the U.S. You know, so right, uh, and also you talk about you know same thing here. No other region will have its position in the transit trade of the world more radically changed in our generation. That's about the Panama Canal, of course. So it's amazing how the, it's the same real kind of conversation we have happening. And it doesn't seem like the details of the conversation has really improved that much. He says here on page 15, The American people know but little of developments in the Caribbean. <laughs> and- yeah. You know, um, to most Americans the world is the word Caribbean is little more than a vague geographical expression. And Yeah, well nowadays the only that.
1: difference is they've been on a <laughs> on a tour on a carnival cruise line. Yeah, exactly. right? it's a carnival
0: cruise line. <laughs> so yeah, so it definitely is amazing how little has changed. Um, in the ha elite conversation of Caribbean US politics, you know, they still they still refer to stuff as, you know, the US's backyard. I mean, if you're talking about someone's backyard and you want them to take you seriously, I'm not sure how else, how you expect them to take you that seriously, but that's that's where we are.
1: Yeah, well, some things just never change it seems.
0: <laughs> so moving on to the next topic, uh there was some very interesting movements. In terms of free trade agreements in Latin, Latin America and China, there's one. There's one recent news about the Uruguay uh, president wanting to move forward with a trade agreement with China, which is many ways unprecedented given the Mercosur agreements that Uruguay is in. Uh, maybe you want to start, start start us off on that topic.
1: Yeah, sure. So this was. a Big topic at the end of July because Mercosur held its annual conference um, this year in uh, Asunción, Paraguay. And we had known for about a year now that Uruguay was interested in pursuing this FTA, but they hadn't seemed to have started really serious negotiations. And, you know, Mercosur is nominally a, a trade a, a customs union. Um, so they're not supposed to have independent trade agreements. Um, they can. This is a, a similar issue is happening right now with Kenya, apparently. And so it's technically feasible, but they, they shouldn't. And if they do, they need to have approval from the rest of the group of Mercosur. So they have this this conference. Uruguay reaffirms, the president's there, and he reaffirms that they're going to pursue this FTA. They're, they'll consult with their partners, but you know they're going to do it. And then at the end, if people want to jump in, they're allowed to. Argentina, flipped out at this, um, as did Paraguay, which doesn't even have relations with China. So you can imagine there's a little bit of difficulty there for them if China's part of this free trade agreement with, you know, a member of the customs union, they don't have diplomatic ties. And so Uruguay wanted to use the summit as an opportunity to reform Mercosur, and Argentina just did not have it at all. Um, And the issue was so contentious, actually, the summit broke down. And Uruguay completely refused to sign a joint declaration at the end because of this issue. And then later, a few weeks afterwards, Uruguay confirmed they were moving ahead with these negotiations. And uh, one of the first steps was they had come to a phytosanitary agreement for the export of Uruguayan sorghum to the PRC, um, You know, a large commodity for them. So you know, we're seeing this move along. It's causing tensions. I thought something that was really interesting that came out of Argentina was um, one of the senior party members of the or President Fernandez's party uh, remarked that you know on the part of Lucayao uh, Powell of Argentina, the FTA hurts him, but the fact that China is finalizing it hit hurts him even more um, because you know in this administration, <laughs> the past couple of years we've seen really, really close ties between Argentina and China. Fernandez being one of the few presidents to go to China during the Olympics. Um, resigned onto the Belt and Road Initiative, which officially went through a couple of weeks ago now, and so for China pre- pursuing this free trade agreement, which is really upsetting one of its closest partners in the hemisphere, um, will definitely be something I think to watch. Because you know, on the one hand, Uruguay's not this massive country; they, this means a lot to them. And on the other hand, it really is disrupting this customs union that's very important to Argentina and isn't is, is barely functional at this point. So
0: yeah, uh, yeah, I. It seems to be like a fairly f- you know we're able to start with this I have so many arguments against why Mercosur and Mercosur type organizations should not exist because they don't have any they don't really have that much implementation power it, in some ways it's more of a club than a fiscal authority and an you know that's a bit. It's a bit harsh to say. I, I understand that, but it's more to me to the point. You have a similar system in the Caribbean called Caricom, and Caricom does have a Caribbean community. It has a similar type Mercosur arrangement with essentially uh, English-speaking Caribbean countries. And similarly, if the Caricom were to try to do a uh, free trade agreement with China, you would have similar. Probably more tensions because five of the CARICOM member states are Taiwan allies. So you probably wouldn't even get anywhere. Right. And so, you, so you see where, where tension comes there. At the same time, you know, to me, free trade agreements are, you know, free trade agreements are never about free trade. They're always about managed trade. It's a good line from uh, Roderick about that. Uh, people kind of, if you actually wanted free trade, you wouldn't need the agreement. Just have free trade. Right. It's almost like, it's like it's almost like a weird double think um comments. You know, free trade agreement. Is, it's that's not that's not true. And a country like Uruguay, yeah, they can benefit somewhat from that. You know, they have various um export commodities and so on. Most countries that are service dependent, a free trade agreement doesn't make much sense. So it's in Uruguay's case. It could make sense. Caribbean's case, it would not make any sense to have a free trade agreement with China. I think that's only uh, useful on paper for political, uh, political posturing. Because if you don't export anything, if you don't have anything to export, being able to export it easier does not make a difference. Right. So, you know, yeah, have, have that issue. But yeah, this does show really the tensions that Mercosur will have to fend fend off i do not think our a digital democracy or much sense in the modern world where actually where countries can have a lot more globalized partnerships and uh, uruguay is small but it's not it's not Barbados small right? it's not right. that small uh, so you uh, want to hear small yeah, well you know small is relative isn't it uh, i don't think uruguay is that small and they could kind of benefit a lot from it However, I I suspect it's definitely one of those cases where the business community in the country is probably pushing this very, very strongly. And because political parties have to respond to their essentially interest groups, there's not much they can do to, you know, push back. Uh, you see, you saw a similar thing here in Panama where years ago, Panama tried to do diplomatic relationships with China years before it actually happened. But Mm -hmm. initially, China just said no because China's own interest in not having more, China's interest in not disturbing the truth between Xi Jinping and Ying-jeou in Taiwan. So he didn't want to take any more partnerships away from Taiwan. But then obviously after the current prime minister became prime minister, current president in Taiwan, that that truth was gone, and Ying-wen uh, was not, you know, a super big fan of Xi Jinping up vice versa. So Panama again requested to join Relationship with Beijing, and Beijing said, Okay, sure, now this time, yes. But it was, t- it was Panama was pushing the thing. So you hear all these things about, Oh, Beijing took an ally from Taiwan. No, an ally from Taiwan left to go to Beijing. It's a, it's a very big difference there. So I do think that for various internal reasons, Uruguay, they're going to push forward this kind of trade agreement. And I think this is a fairly good indication that Mercosur will just continue. Continue to weaken from already very weak position as an organization. It's really just about summits. They don't have much bite into the policy. I, I know, like academics love to discuss multilateral organizations. I guess it's because it fun. makes papers fun to write. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But multilateralism in these kind of regions are are just primarily academic contentions, not really that useful for policy making. I'm not sure if you have a different thought on that.
1: No, I, I largely agree with that. And I just say, in addition, I think this also shows on the flip side, on the Chinese side, that an interesting comment that Commander Richardson had was that, you know, the Chinese have this long strategic view of the region, right? And if they did, they they probably wouldn't be jeopardizing a close relationship with Argentina over, you know, this d- domestic dispute with a much smaller partner, Uruguay, right? Um, Or at least I think would maybe be handling it a little bit better. I mean, you can see like people in our, you know, political leadership in Argentina is not very happy about this. And it takes two to tango, right? It's not just the Uruguayans pushing this, you know, the Chinese are engaged. They could have said no. So I think this also somewhat shows that like there is more complexity to what, China might be doing and it might be a little bit more ad hoc and there's competing priorities. And it's not just one grand strategic vision vision that's being executed Mm -hmm. domino by domino. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. but
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, there's always this interest in trying to, I'm not even sure why it is, but there's always this big interest in trying to paint China as this master chess prodigy, prodigy. Our master, our chess grandmaster that always knows the moves, like 15 moves ahead can play chess blindfolded only, you know. You know, that's not true. It's not really been true, really, ever. Just that they have a better view, more of the CCP doesn't pay a price for bad moves mm-hmm. compared to, let's say, a normal democratic uh, country. So they can make bad moves. And still have the ability to correct, a uh, course correct, and not actually lose power. So over time, because they actually do course correct, it was seen like they have a like, long view where they do these things and do it, the twenty, you know, ten-year plans and fifteen-year plans. But in reality, they're making so many errors with no political price. Uh, so because of that, they have the time to go to
1: correct. Right, and and when you also don't have an opposition that's coming in, right? You think about. Obama to Trump to Biden. You know, you could just... Ooh. The the president would just blame his predecessor. And like, oh, those those were all terrible moves. You know, how could they do that? I'm going to do it completely different. Right. right? But if you don't have that kind of system where you're Correct. trying to blame your your predecessor, you know, you're going to be like, oh, I totally meant to do that. That was clearly purposeful. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Playing yeah. it off cool when exactly. in reality, mistakes are made, so...
0: Yeah, that's right. And, I, yeah, I'm not... I, I'm still not too sure what... Yeah, I don't get why... The DC the DC literati wants to make it seem like China is this grand master strategy. I'm not sure if it makes their position any stronger. If that is the case, I mean it gets, it sounds more menacing perhaps. And yes, it does sound more menacing. But I'm not only yeah, I'm still you know I'm still trying to think through why that's the case. In in some ways, uh, I I do think these like you know these like, continued treaty agreements over time. uh they don't get that much attention, uh, I think. But, you know, over time, they definitely add up into this big network of economic integration. Uh, no, you know, not far more integration, of course, but, you know, much more integration than previously when it compares to China's access, uh, China's um, or country's access to China markets, which is growing in a very rapid pace. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of conversation about China backsliding into more autocratic systems. You know, maybe, of this is true. By the same time, Chinese markets are very open, uh, comparatively to many times in recent Chinese history. Even recent, even recently, this is last year. China announced even more financial openness, where they now allow. Many types of um, financial companies to be wholly owned by foreign companies. That's that's never Mm -hmm. been the case. It's a very recent development. So at the same time with autocratic revival, you still have more financial market openness, which is not something you hear about very often. But those kind of things because of trade agreements and... Uh, monetary dis- uh, monetary distribution, RMB across the world, you have to m- watch those things very carefully. As soon as China's become much more closed off, so you're going to miss the mark when it comes to these, you know, small countries doing these agree- agreements with China.
1: Well, and to your point about, you know, this being able to happen without new agreements, you know, increased trade, increased business opportunities, um, we're seeing right now in Ecuador, some numbers just dropped a couple of days ago that Ecuador's trade with, China increased over 100% over last year's mm-hmm. first half of the year. You know, they're supposed to have a free trade agreement by the end of the year, mm-hmm. and, you know, slowly making progress on that. But China is now the, the largest trade partner with Ecuador for non-oil goods, surpassing the U.S. in trade um, quite quite substantially by about like half a billion dollars. So, you know, you can see with just such a large market, you know, their policies changing That they don't necessarily just need these agreements to still be a big player in a lot of these countries. It often can just be more of a political tool than just an economic tool.
0: Yeah, that's right. So now there's another fun development uh, recently in China-Caribbean stuff in particular. and There's the opening of the China-Caribbean Development Center. I believe
1: I have that correct. I believe so, yeah. What do you think about (laughs) it?
0: You know, I think it is such a terrible idea for many reasons. I mean, terrible from the perspective of people who actually follow this thing happening. If you're sort of, you know, a person on the street or so on, a casual observer, it's fine, it's fine, okay. China has a tendency to create these kind of multilateral focused organizations. To do all pomp and circumstance ceremonies, and you know, bring the ambassadors to. I think this one was in Shandong, I think. Mm-hmm and they would you know let's do some meet and greet and do some flag waving and play some anthems and you know talk about win-win and all that fun stuff but in reality these organizations are empty vessels real and realistically speaking they don't have any real plans they don't have very much real staff they don't have much real goals they don't have anything beyond you know slogans in in this sense and This to me is, this one in particular, is a very, very clear example of this problem that China has. Because, as I I I mentioned earlier, multilateralism is not really a thing in this region. And the Caribbean with CARICOM is much more so not a thing. Because if to ask you, okay, you have a Caribbean-China development center. Which Caribbean are you talking about? Is it the same Caribbean that has five Taiwan allies? Is it the same Caribbean that can't actually agree on its own custom union? Is it the same Caribbean that can't have a single trade agreement anywhere else in the world really that has actual teeth and not just pale words on paper? So is it the same Caribbean that has no way to actually coordinate um, laws amongst countries? Is it the same Caribbean that doesn't have a joint embassies really in the world? So if you're going to engage with the Caribbean as a concept, a political concept, where is it? I don't know where it is. And because of that, saying you have a China-Caribbean development center doesn't make any sense to me. And I've even asked some of the ambassadors from the Caribbean in China what they think about it are notable. And they don't really have... They don't have any... Knowledge of it, besides like, the printout they've been given when they were invited to the ceremony, um, or even if if, if, you, if you kind of look at that point also, the embassies from the Caribbean countries in China are quite, um, you know, they don't have the capacity to do anything. I, I, I last time I checked, the Embassy of Barbados in China has maybe three staff members.
1: Wow. There's
0: only one embassy in Beijing, and they have three staff, I think two... Three to Barbadian staff, including the ambassador, and then two local training staff, like a driver and a housekeeper, essentially. And that's the case, you know, for other countries also. The Jamaica embassy is bigger, but again, yeah, not that much capacity, and so on. So, even if the embassies were to attempt to do stuff, they can't do stuff. I, mean, I remember speaking with a former Caribbean ambassador to, to China, and he told me that, you know, sometimes they can't, they don't even have a budget to travel to ch- uh, places in China so that she can't do much diplomacy even in China, just so, you know, even basic, speechless diplomacy, they often don't have enough budget to do so they has got to stay in Beijing and, you know, be, th- they be there, essentially. So, there, there's so, so many problems underlying this idea of China, the Caribbean development center that it really isn't even worth uh the paper that people read about it so yeah it is it, just one of those really annoying chinese things they do all the time there was also like a china caribbean research center in wuhan university that i think opened in 2013 I want to say as far as as I can tell they only published like a single paper online like in 2013 and that was it we're done and that's all that's all it was
1: I mean it was a mic drop apparently the paper was so good (laughs) they had had nothing else to say about the Caribbean they covered it all (laughs) you know is there something that you think these kinds of centers could do that would be beneficial if they were staffed properly or given the right resources Is there's just you know Political resources should be spelled, spent elsewhere. The, these types of centers are just a press release.
0: Could could they be useful? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, probably no. Probably not. The reason why I say probably not is because I don't think any of the problem in China-Caribbean relations is on China's side. I think almost. Oh uh, at least not majority. So, the majority of the problem is on the Caribbean side. Con Caribbean, they just don't have the capacity to do policy really well with any kind of Chinese counterparty. And this could be in economics, could be agriculture, it could be education, could be tech, you know, we could go down the line there. And there's no real path, short path. For the Caribbean to increase that capacity, just these fundamental structural constraints. For example, if there was a Caribbean embassy in the PRC, that's a very different world we live in, uh, where we, because you could have ag- 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 aggregated staff and you have a lot more capacity to do anything. But that's not the world we live in. Uh, if, for example, you had also the ability to have a public sectors in the various Caribbean countries. That had the ability to collate the information and figure out, okay, what do we actually need from our foreign allies and business partners? And then you know, push that up to the Ministry of Economics. And then they will push that up to Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And so then you kind of work together to optimize your domestic, optimize your domestic things using foreign policy. How it should have been done. And what was the actual intention when the Caribbean became independent? Sure. In those cases, yes. But the Caribbean countries don't have any sophisticated public service because there's just not enough people. Uh Reality is brain drain is a, a a serious problem in the Caribbean, and you can't reverse that. If there was a way, for example, to similar to how, I guess, Hong Kong may have done it before. I remember a Caribbean climate, Dr. World, he had this idea where Caribbean government should actually be inviting, for example, let's say a Hong Kong person or a, you know, a Canadian person to, you know, be in the public service, run the run departments in public service and so on. So actually increase the use the world as your supply chain for intellectual capacity in, in your Caribbean country. And then then use those abilities to then influence how you treat foreign policy. Sure, in that world, um, all these fun things available, then yeah, Caribbean Center could make sense. But in the world we do live in, the world as it is, uh, I do not see how these kind of uh, centers in, in China, at least as it pertains to the Caribbean. For other regions, I I, I can't comment as as detailed. Uh, right now, it's really just a press release. That's all it is.
1: Right. Well, I, I thought it was interesting as well that the officials who were there uh, on the Chinese side, about half of them, it seemed that were listed at least, were not even from the, the national government. They're from Shandong. which is that alone is five times the population of CARICOM. That, that one province <laughs> alone, right? Talking about yeah, structural right. resources. Its economy, I think, is 10 times larger. Something like that. Probably more than that. So, you know, that's that's a lot for them to overcome when your provincial governor uh, has more resources available than your entire region, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. If you, were to, if you model the way how Caribbean economies work, when it comes to services and the you know the minor exports that some of them have when you model it essentially the model should state that essentially the the there is an infinite demand for the supply that the caribbean has because as you mentioned these places are so big and have so much economic power that you but see at the same time mind you this because like the Caribbean is so small and the goods are so minor and services not that many. You don't even need to do much deals with Chinese companies or Chinese firms to actually do well in the Caribbean. You hear sometimes about the um, Caribbean tourism boards and so on. Are different as in the Caribbean boards from different Caribbean, uh, the tourism boards from different Caribbean countries. They so would talk about, oh, maybe we should do like some tourism advertising in China, you know, so on, so on. And you, you would think, yeah, that makes sense, you know, more markets, bigger stuff and, you know, all, of that, all of that cool thing. But Caribbean small. You, you haven't even exhausted the Americans to come to Caribbean. For In New York, I might see a, a ad for a beach in Barbados I will never see an ad for a beach in Barbados in Cincinnati or Nashville, for example. Right. Um, So even like in America, there's the the instant supply. The instant demand is still there. The interest of going to China is not very strategic, really and truly. Even if you if you export rum or export food, like we could export all of it to the U.S. or to Canada or to England. Uh, There's really no. If you were to really, really think about it, there's no big need to, in, to, to export to China. And if this interest, I know a lot of, um, countries where, oh, we have to, inc- inc- um, equilibrate our balance of trade between China. I mean, you know, that's not really how economics works or how macro policy should be, should be thought of. You can have an extreme imbalance of trade with one country, but still have a very good balance of trade with your, you know, on your macro variables. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, I don't really see, much good future for China-Caribbean policy being made because, just in general, Caribbean policy is very weak. If we're to say, oh, what's the Caribbean policy towards the U.S.? Well, first, I'll ask you, where's the Caribbean and what Caribbean are you talking about? And then it was ask you, well, when has there ever been a policy towards the U.S.? They they haven't. If you don't even have a U.S. policy, what what chance is there of having a Chinese policy?
1: Right. Probably. Almost none. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah almost done so it's a more cheerful conversation <laughs> hmm. <laughs> what where do we want, want to go next
1: um uh, well there was a big trip you might have heard about a, a lesser known speaker of the house from the united states went to <laughs> taiwan and caused a bit of a kerfuffle uh to say the least and you know normally this would just be a u.s china taiwan triangle story right wouldn't really involve Latin America but when I went to go to some of these For the Chinese embassies in in Latin America's websites, it was quite notable, actually, the degree to which some of them felt a need to tell their, you know, local compatriots, you know, that this was completely unjust and explain their view of the story and then highlight local actors. Um, In Uruguay, they highlighted a number of political parties, communists as well as senators and leading academics, similar in Mexico, the the Chinese ambassador to the Bahamas wrote an op-ed saying that defying the will of 1.4 billion people was doomed to fail. Mm -hmm. You know, some very, very strong reactions uh, on the Chinese side aimed towards a Latin American audience or or presented as if it was aimed towards a Latin American audience or Caribbean audience. And meanwhile, Mm -hmm. you actually had some responses as well from some Latin American leaders. Um, Most notably, President López Obrador of Mexico took up both sides uh, condemning the conflict, any conflict from the U.S. and China and saying, you know, the developing world's been through enough. Please calm down. We don't need another war in the world. Prime Minister Brown from Antigua Barbuda said something similar. And then on the flip side, you had the countries that, that recognized Taiwan putting out statements praising Nancy Pelosi and condemning China. Most notably, the prime minister of St. Vincent actually traveled to Taipei a couple of days afterwards, met with uh, the president of Taiwan, and then came back and encourage his, his diplomatic corps to uh, create a statement with all the other countries that recognize China, uh, recognize Taiwan, sorry, condemning China at the UN. So it's been a, a very busy month in the hemisphere from an issue that you normally would think is just a China, Taiwan, U.S. dispute.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What, do you, what do you think about, you know, these Caribbean and Latin American countries having um, all these statements issued towards them? You know, usually they probably wouldn't have much of an interest in this area, I would think. But do you think, you know, these statements have any impact on locals in in Latin America and the Caribbean, you know, affecting their point of view? Or is it more just, you think, the the diplomats in China trying to say to their boss, hey, I issued something. Look at how much I uh, believe in the cause and, you (laughs) know, I'm I'm loyal to the diplomatic service.
0: Yeah, I, I can safely say these don't have any impact on locals can safely safely say that you know most people don't even know what PRC and RLC means uh, you know those are those are the same thing for most people right uh, so sometimes people don't know what Taiwan is and many people can't even tell you what the capital of China is either so these are you know very very uh, elite issues and most uh, people in the Caribbean are not interested in those topics. Uh, also, you would rarely, if ever, I don't think I've ever really seen this. You would rarely, if ever, even see a topic of this on national news in the, the, the 7 o'clock even news. They won't mention this stuff either. So it really has... Very little local impact. Uh, I know some, I remember I a couple years now, early COVID. Not early, early, but very near to early COVID pandemic. Uh, when Taiwan was doing very, very well in the pandemic. When it was open, we were having some summer parties and, you know, that kind of stuff. And there was a big campaign to, I forgot what, is that wording but it was Let Taiwan in the WTO, WHO, sorry. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, it says, hashtag Taiwan can help. That was the trend, I believe. I see like the ministers in of government in the Caribbean making videos on Twitter and Facebook about you know hashtag Taiwan can help in terms of the uh, I guess helping them to get more. I'm not sure what the help was exactly because the information that Taiwan had was already in WHO. But the point is that was that was a tragedy, and yeah, those videos on Twitter had like maybe 200 likes. Period. Right. right? And if you actually like I, I as I you know, as I do, I click through to see who actually who liked these videos. And they're mostly like Taiwan people. Even on if you go to the Facebook, for example, if, I, I, I do this really often. If you go to the Facebook page of some of the Taiwan embassies in the Caribbean, I'm posting or Belize, I think I follow Belize very closely. The embassy. They post some good stuff, good food pictures. Uh mostly likes are from people in Taiwan, they're not from people in Belize. They're not that many total period, but it likes, uh, like, 80% Taiwanese people. Uh, So, even like, in this normal activity, people in the Caribbean do not really take this issue at all very seriously. There was like a very fun, um, story, which we tell all the time. Um, back in 20, my gosh, this is a while ago, though. It's 20, 2003, it was 2003. Maybe, maybe five, maybe six, but I think it's also three. The, a stadium was built for, I think this is Grenada, could also be St. Kitts, uh, by, uh it's Gren- Grenada. A stadium was built by Grenada, built for Grenada by PRC, I believe, and the police banned because Grenada at that time was just was recently a Taiwan ally. The police mm-hmm. band, when they played the national anthem from PRC. They played the ROC anthem. Oh my goodness! Because they didn't actually notice a big difference. And and then in, more recently, like probably two years ago, there was like a ceremony at like Saint Kitts where the prime minister, as my friend mentioned, the prime minister. He is, is a Taiwan ROC ally. And at the ceremony, he's the prime, prime minister, minister of finance, a minister of foreign affairs, very high-level minister. He was saying thank you to our friends in the PRC for this, this generous donation. and
1: <laughs> Everyone <laughs> is, you like know, is covering years. their face. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: exactly. This, this, this two years ago. So, yeah, cross-stirited relations are very much dead in the Caribbean in, in a realistic way but yes though the though the Caribbeans have a very high proportion of Taiwan allies, like those are elite politics issues. People in right. the Caribbean don't even know the difference between the two things, you know, and also keep in mind this as well, um you don't see things that say I made mean in Taiwan. you see everything I mean in China, so for most Caribbean people, China is just one thing, right you know, and it's also why it's called that's why for example this is a just fat of life i'm making no more argument or foreign policy argument on this point uh this is why however it's always me very funny when the prc embassies then go on this like defense posture for every time there is some story or comment because They're not talking to Caribbean people. I mean, yes, it's published in a Caribbean newspaper or it's on a Twitter or a Facebook page. They're only, only talking to their bosses. They're not talking to Caribbean people. Caribbean people have no idea what the difference is between those two countries.
1: Right. Well, uh, we did see this. We were talking before about how this, this UN statement was released. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, the the statement that St. Vincent put out and everyone except Honduras, uh, that allies with Taiwan agreed to, and you know, it's like a three, 400 word statement. And the Chinese embassy at the UN puts out this thousand word screed, you know, condemning these statements <laughs> and how could these <laughs> countries do it? And their people should be, you know, ashamed of how they're defying the will of 1.4 billion people. And I, I really just cannot imagine that someone in St. Kitts is reading this and going, you know, that person at the u n is right in New york <laughs> I'm gonna vote differently we're gonna we're gonna pursue something else <laughs> This will be the end of our relationship yes. with taiwan right
0: yeah exactly it, it is yeah it is this this is an example of just yeah people they they, they tend to uh, yeah, it's, they tend to conflate elite politics with politics, and it's not the same thing right well. Yeah, so Ethan, we covered quite a lot of ground here. Um, I want to move on to the final segment, which is the recommendation segment. Do you have any recommendations for listeners about, you know, some good book to read or perhaps even a good film or documentary to watch?
1: Yeah, so I was actually rereading some of um, Tom Long's book, Latin America Confronts the United States, specifically the the chapter on Brazil encouraging the U.S. uh, to actually focus on development in the region. I really, you know, if, if people haven't read the book, it's it is a pretty good book, a good piece of political science. But th- this chapter in particular, really, you were talking before about how history repeats itself. The issues are, are still the same. You know, the, the book talks about how countries in Latin America were, the, the chapter talks about how countries in Latin America were really just arguing, you know, we need money. We need uh, infrastructure investment. We can't just let the, the private sector do it all. And this is the view that, you know, leads to the IDB and so forth. Um, And it's funny how, you know, we're having the same debate right now, right? About, you know, oh, the Chinese or the U.S. needs to invest more money in Latin America. Um, You need more aid commitment. That's what's going to make the difference to regional development. You can't just say free trade. You can't just say let in more U.S. or or Chinese companies. So I recommend that book, specifically that chapter, just for how much it it resonates with things going on at the same time. And then a a China-focused book that I've been listening to is Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, Ah, uh, by Stephen Platt mm-hmm. about the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, and it's, it's such a vivid book, and you know it's such a odd historical event that as a, an American yes. who mostly <laughs> learned U.S. history and barely learned any Chinese history, unfortunately, to actually get into the nitty <laughs> gritty of what happened is a bit of a rude awakening and kind of changes your perspective on on world events and also just like what can happen when someone thinks that they are Jesus's brother and needs to slaughter <laughs> everyone. To prove a point, I guess. So those two books at the moment are what I recommend uh, and have been reading. What about you?
0: Yeah, so I I tend to read maybe like five books at the same time. Just so you know, don't don't get bored in any one particular book. Uh, I guess I recommend two books. One is, I guess, not China-specific. One is about the the British Empire by Neil Ferguson. It's called Empire. The Rise and Demise of the British World Order and the Lessons for Global Power. Well, you know, you can see it's kind of relevant... (laughs) To or you know, us the conversation. And it's a very good book. Uh, I, you know, am a very big fan of Ferguson. I've read m- most of his books. I've now kind of rereading it, this book. Essentially, one of the core arguments is the, the path of globalization, which we are on currently, is a descendant of the British Empire. And without the British Empire, it would have been unlikely the way how we are globalized now could have been sustained. I actually think that's true. And it's a highly, highly well done book. I highly recommend it. Another book I've been reading, this is more China-specific, I suppose. I mean, it definitely is. It's called The Invention of China mm-hmm. by Bill Hayton. And this book has had some mixed reviews. But, you know, I, I don't think you should ever read one book in isolation to read a group, a group of books about the same topic. Uh, essentially, was making the point of how the idea of one big China is a very new concept, which is, you know, pretty true. And discusses the different um, antecedent kingdoms and empires that went into forming modern China. And it's a it's not very big. It's a fairly you can probably read it in a couple of days. It's not a very big book compared to many other like Chinese history books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh I do I do also recommend that as well.
1: we I'll have to put it on my list. It sounds great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much, Ethan. It's been a very fun conversation and we're going to do another episode of this quite soon.
1: Thank you. I can't wait. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me.
0: And listeners, please leave a rating, a review for the podcast on podcast on spotify and that really helps the show thank you and see you next episode